Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Son of God and High Priest. Great High Priest. 4.14. Since then, we have a great High Priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a High Priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can approach you in the name of Christ and by the power of your spirit and by the will of the spirit to guide us and lead us in how we should pray. We thank you, Lord, that redemption is ours and that we have a great high priest. Help us, Lord, to reflect on this truth and to be more eager to pray and to hold fast our faith until the very end. In the name of Christ, amen. In this passage, after he has explained in chapters 3 and 4 many things about how we ought to enter the rest of God, enter into heaven itself by faith in Christ and not disobey what we hear, now he turns to encourage us by identifying who Christ is, identifying who he is, and how we ought to pray to him, because he is there in order to help us. He is there to grant us assistance to live our Christian life. Hear the word of God as he's been exhorting us. Now that we have heard the word of God, what is the proper response to hearing the word of God? Come in prayer, come with uh, petitions to God himself by means of his word. We know his word, and so based on what he has said about himself, based on his promises, we ought to pray to him. This is the, these are the twin disciplines, the two basic disciplines of the Christian life, the word of God and prayer. We ought to know the word of God, meditate on it, memorize it, read it, study it, talk about it, share it with others, and then also pray. Pray about whatever is there. Pray about whatever is there in contrast to our life. Whenever there are problems, whenever there are afflictions, whenever there are uncertainties, when we need direction in what to do in life with friends, family, circumstances, whatever they may be, we ought to pray to God. Pray to God according to the word of God, based on whatever he has said about himself, about his promises, and about us, and how to rightly walk with him, to live our life with him, pray. Pray, pray, pray. And this exhortation to pray is meant to be an encouragement to us, that we are not left alone. We are with the Lord here as we journey in this world, and as we look for our heavenly city, our heavenly home. We're on a journey from here to there. And the way to be successful in that journey, he's already said, listen to and obey the word of God. And now he will focus on remembering who God is and what he's done for us. And then pray, pray with confidence. Let's see this in verses 14 to 16. We see in verse 14, he has called Christ a priest and the son of God. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Before his exhortation of holding fast our confession, he explains who Christ is. 
and he gives him two names. He gives him the name Great High Priest and the Son of God. Let's look at the Son of God first, and then we'll go to High Priest, as that is also repeated in verse 15. Firstly, the Son of God. He says he is Jesus, the Son of God. He's identifying Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. This is Jesus' earthly name, taken from Matthew chapter 1, Matthew 1, 21 and, and following. There, Jesus is called um, Jesus because he is a Savior, the Lord who will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. It comes to us from Hebrew into Greek and Latin and then into English. But the original Hebrew meaning was the Lord is salvation. It has a, a syllable of the word Lord and then the word for salvation. The Lord is salvation. So this Jesus, when we say Jesus, and those who knew the Greek and the Hebrew of the Old Testament, they would have been reminded of this truth. He is called Jesus because the angel said that would be his earthly name. Though he has many names, even in this passage, he's called Son of God and Great High Priest. He's got many names and titles, yet Jesus is his primary, primary earthly name. Not only does it identify that the Lord is salvation he, and he has saved us from sin, provided salvation in the person of Jesus Christ, it also reminds us that he's human. He's human. He was perfectly human in every way, yet without sin, as it said in verse 15. He was human. So he had to be a human because no animal could pay the penalty of our sin. No grain offering could pay the penalty of our sin. No monetary offering could pay the penalty of our sin. None of our good works could pay the penalty of our sin. Nothing could pay the penalty of our sin except the death of Jesus Christ. But his death could only be possible if he had a human nature, if he became a man just like we are, if he had a human body, if he had a human soul, if he would die to pay the penalty for our sin. The human nature of Christ is absolutely essential. It cannot be negotiated. In fact, according to 1 John 4, 1 to 6, the Antichrist teaches, and there are many Antichrists, the Antichrist teaches that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh. He did not have a body of flesh and bones. The Antichrist teaches that. There are deviations and, and heresies from Christianity and also other religions that in one way or another compromise the humanity of Christ. Yet we believe in it. We believe in his perfect humanity and that he actually died on the cross. Furthermore, we have this phrase, the Son of God. The Son of God. We need to, before we explain the true meaning of it, explain a few false meanings of it because this phrase has been misunderstood worldwide. This phrase, Son of God, as attributed to Jesus, has been misunderstood. Firstly, in the Bible, we have to explain that when the Bible says Son of God, in reference to people, humans, it's saying it in reference to them being created by God. They are sons of God by creation. Examples of this 
would be in Luke 3:38, where there's a genealogy and Adam is mentioned in that verse and Adam is called the son of God. He's called the son of God because he was created by God. Or also we could see in Acts chapter 17, when the apostle Paul is preaching to the Greeks, he's a Jew and he's preaching to the Greeks, he cites one of their poets who had an element of the truth in their philosophy and in their religion, where, where the poet says, we all are his offspring. We all are the offspring of God. Acts chapter 17, 27, 28. There he says that we as creatures are the offspring of God. So in that sense, we are all sons of God. There's another sense in which all of us are sons of God. That is, we, are, we who are redeemed are called sons of God by adoption. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, explain that we are sons of God because we are adopted into the family of God. God the Father chooses us, adopts us as belonging to his family. Therefore, we Christians, we who are redeemed, are known as sons of God. Even Romans 8, 16, and 17 calls us the sons of God and children of God. And that is by adoption. God adopts us. Though we were helpless and though we were unworthy, yet he had compassion on us and he adopted us into his family. Another way in which the Bible says son of God or sons of God is in reference to angels. Angels, such as in Job 38 verse 7, are called morning stars and sons of God. Why? Because they were created by God and even more because they share some of that glory that we do not have. That is, they are brilliant and radiant whenever they appear. Usually that is the way that they appear when they come on the earth. We see them in some glorious fashion. So they are called sons of God also by creation, yet they are heavenly beings and known as sons of God. Those are some true biblical ways in which the term son of God is used, but different from Jesus being the son of God. Now, within Christianity in Christian cults, those people who claim to be Christians but are not really Christians, and also outside of Christianity in world false religions, they also misunderstand what it means for Jesus himself to be the son of God. Mormons think Jesus is the son of God because they say God in heaven, he has numerous goddess wives, they all have physical bodies, and God procreated, he had intercourse with his wives, and with one of the, the wives, he, when he had this intercourse, they produce a spirit baby. They all produce spirit babies in heaven, and eventually those spirits come to the earth and inhabit a body. And in their theology, they say, Jesus is the firstborn spirit, the firstborn son of God of that heavenly arrangement, that he heavenly pantheon. And Satan is one of the next brothers, descendants of God in heaven and with his goddess wives. That's what Satan is. Satan was that, and then he fell and became evil. That's in their theology. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Jehovah's Witnesses, they also say Jesus is the Son of God. 
Jehovah's Witnesses, however, believe that it means that Jesus was the firstborn creature of God. Jesus was the first and foremost creation of God, is their expression. The first and foremost creation of God. God the Father created Jesus in heaven, and then Jesus created everything else. And actually they say Jesus and Michael the archangel are the same person, the same being. Michael the archangel is another way to describe Jesus, the Son of God, according to their doctrine. Then, outside of Christianity, in Islam, when Islam hears this phrase, Son of God, they think that we believe Islam projects on us that God is one person of the Trinity, Jesus is another person of the Trinity, and Mary is the third person of the Trinity. That they think our Trinity is Father, Son, and Mary. And they also say there is no way that God would have a son because God does not procreate. In that sense, they are right. God does not procreate. So they impose the idea of procreation on us and say, we Christians, we believe that God has sexual relations in heaven and he produces Jesus Christ. And that, therefore, we Christians call Jesus the son of God. They completely distort and misunderstand what the Bible teaches and what Christians have believed for many, many years. They completely miss the point. Then in Hinduism and other pagan religions that believe in idolatry, in what way is Jesus the Son of God? He is the Son of God in that they believe, like Mormons, that the gods have relationships in heaven, they have sexual relationships, marriage, and they even believe that fornication happens in heaven among the gods. They do those things, and Jesus is one of those sons. They think that Jesus is one of those sons, just like many of their own gods and goddesses, sons and daughters, are the offspring, literal offspring, of deities, pantheons, having sexual intercourse in heaven or in some other place. That's what they think. And so when they hear this word, Son of God, they think, oh, okay, Christians believe like we do. No, we do not believe like that. It is different. It is entirely different. When the Bible, therefore, says Jesus is the Son of God, what does it mean? It means that Jesus has a divine nature just like the Father and just like the Spirit. That's it. Jesus has a divine nature. He possesses deity. He is not merely a human. He possessed a divine nature before he came into the world, and he still has a divine nature. That's what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. He is equal in glory, in power, in essence, in substance, nature with the Father. That's what the Bible means by Son of God. And then the relationship between Father and Son is merely for our comprehension, for us to understand that there is a kind and loving relationship between those persons of the Trinity. That's why it is said that way, the Son of God. 
Now, biblical evidence that what I just said is true. John chapter 5, John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, we read, and, and also 18, 16 to 18. 5.16, John 5.16, and for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, when Jesus rebutted them, they were persecuting him and they didn't like it that he healed somebody on the Sabbath. So Jesus gives an answer to it. He says in verse 17, my father is working until now and I myself am working. Jesus did not say our father is working. He said my father is working. When he said my father is working, the Jews understood what he implied by that. They understood that he implied that he has a unique relationship to his father, one that nobody else has. No angel has it, no human has it, there is no other God. Only the father and the son, they have this unique relationship. That's why Jesus called him my father. The Jews knew that, and that's why in verse 18, they were seeking all the more to kill him because it would be blasphemy if he were to claim deity. So they wanted to kill him for breaking the Sabbath and for calling God his own father. There we have it. John the Apostle explains the problem, that the, the problem that was in the mind of the Jews because Jesus was calling God his own father. He explained. Making him, so when he does that, he makes himself equal with God. Equal with God the Father. That's who Jesus is. He is equal with God the Father. Furthermore, what, what is the significance of this? What should we derive from this? That Jesus, who was the Son of God, he condescended. He came into this world to become a man so that he might be afflicted and also live perfectly and then die on the cross for us and rise from the dead. Philippians 2. Philippians 2 explains. Philippians 2, verse 5. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The apostle here is explaining how Jesus, he existed in the form of God before he came into the world. And his equality with God, 
He did not grasp it. He did not hold on to it to such an extent that he refused to empty himself. That means to take upon a human body. He did take upon a human body and he lived like a slave. He lived like a slave. And not only that, but they put that slave on the cross. He lived obediently to the point of death on a cross. But, as we see in Hebrews 4.14, that wasn't the end. Our Son of God and our great High Priest was eventually exalted. He was exalted, highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. He is exalted in that after He accomplished our redemption, He ascended into heaven. Remember, Hebrews 4.14 says he has passed through the heavens. Paul here in Philippians 2 says that God highly exalted him. He passed through the heavens, he ascended into heaven, and he sits there at the right hand of the Father until the second coming. And he reigns and rules there as the one who has accomplished everything for our salvation and is awaiting the day that he returns and gives us full salvation. That's why he says here, a day will come when every knee bows and every tongue confesses. A word on his ascension. When we say Jesus ascended, we know that after his resurrection, he appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days. That's said in Acts chapter 1. And as he appeared to his disciples in over 500 brethren at one time, it says, in one occurrence, over 500 brothers at one time with them, he appeared. So over 40 days, he appeared in various circumstances, various places, various events, and he explained things about himself and his resurrection and the future. What he did by dying and rising and the future. He explained many things to them over those 40 days. Why? To be an eyewitness, so that those people could be eyewitnesses and go out and proclaim Jesus and the resurrection as they do in the book of Acts. Now, before the day of Pentecost, what happened? It says 40-day period. What happened on the 40th day? Acts 1, verses 6 to 8. Acts 1, 6 to 8. Actually, 6 to 11. 6 to 11. So when they had come together... They were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they gazed intently into the sky, while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The way he went up into heaven, as they witnessed, is the way he will come back from heaven. But what about... So that's the factuality of the ascension. People think that that's just fiction and myth 
Jesus would never ascend like that in bodily form up into heaven. And in the same way, they mocked the second coming. He's never going to come back. All of that is ridiculous. And that is just religious fiction, they think. But no. Acts chapter 1, Luke, who carefully and methodically recounted the events of the life of Christ and the life of the apostles, he says that there were witnesses there with many infallible proofs that Jesus ascended. So what is the significance of his ascension? The significance, as is mentioned in Hebrews 4.14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He passed through the heavens to be a token for us, an encouragement to us. He accomplished everything that was necessary on the earth. And he went as a forerunner before us. He is there awaiting us. He is there not only awaiting us, he's there helping us. He's there mindful of us. He's there ready to intercede for us and to answer prayers for us. That's why it's said that he went up into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's at the right hand of the Father, not in any vain way. We are not told that in any kind of just factual, just for the sake of knowledge way. We are told that because he has already finished everything and he has already gone there. He has proceeded. He is there ahead of us and he awaits for us to come and meet him. This is said to us so that we might be encouraged to know it is worth it. The Christian life is worth it. Jesus, our forerunner, has already made it there and he will ensure that we make it there. He is there interceding for us so that we make it there with him. That's why he says, Jesus has passed through the heavens. So now, he says, because of these truths of the person and work of Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens, remember, he says, since, since we have this kind of person, this kind of God, let us hold fast our confession. Where else are we going to go for salvation? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the only one. You're the only one who has done this. You're the only one who is seated there at the right hand of the Father. So where else shall we go? Nowhere else. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name uh, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other place. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast. Grasp onto it. Don't let go. It is the only way of salvation. Hold fast. Endure. Remain. Don't give up. Don't be anxious. Don't be tremulous. Don't be anything. Hold on to Christ. Hold on to Him and to Him alone. There is no other place to go. Atheism is vacuous, it's empty, it's miserable. You can't believe in atheism. How can you believe in reincarnation as in Hinduism and Buddhism? That's also worthless and miserable. Who, who would have any hope with that? In that system of reincarnation, the transmigration of the soul, when you come back into this world many, many times, many, many millions of times back into this world in different forms, how is that encouraging? How is that hopeful? No. There, that is a system of pure justice, meaning 
It excludes mercy and it excludes love. It excludes grace. The system of reincarnation and transmigration of the soul excludes any notion of love, grace, and mercy. It is pure justice for everyone and in every circumstance and in every thought, word, and deed. It's only justice. Because whatever you do now will be the consequence of your life to come when you come back into this world again. There's no hope in that. And then if you are Hindu and you believe in that, eventually after millions and millions of reincarnations, you will become like a drop of water in the ocean and lose your identity. Or if you are in Buddhism, you will receive what they call nirvana, and that is millions and millions of reincarnations and then ultimately complete extinction. You lose any consciousness, you are, are not a person anymore, you completely cease to exist. How is that good? How is that hopeful? In Christianity, in biblical Christianity, we have a loving and merciful God. And we will be with Him and enjoy His presence, enjoy the glorious presence, as we saw in Isaiah 25. It's not going to be a time of mourning. All of our tears are going to be wiped away. It's not going to be a time of death. There is no more death. But we will be in the presence of the Lord, and He describes it as a banquet. We're going to relish and enjoy His presence forever. This is our Creator. This is our God. This is our God for whom we have waited. This is our salvation. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the gospel teaches. And no one else, no other religion teaches that. Yes, Islam, it teaches base pleasures, right? The men will have many virgins, depending on how they have lived here. They're going to enjoy all kinds of things forever and ever, all kinds of foods, luscious and, and juicy foods, all for, forever and ever. They have a very sensual, very pleasure-seeking kind of mentality in, in terms of what heaven and paradise will be. That's not in the Bible. No. Our enjoyment will be God himself. Not the things he gives us, but God himself. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession. Don't let the world, the flesh, and the devil, do not let the world, the flesh, and the devil bring doubts into your mind about the veracity of the Bible. The Bible is true from beginning to end. The teachings of the Bible are true from beginning to end. Don't let them shake your faith. Don't let them bring doubts into your mind. The Bible is true. Don't let your friends, don't let your foes, don't let anybody, don't let a movie, don't let a magazine, don't let a newspaper, don't let any kind of so-called documentary, don't let anything shake your faith in the word of Christ. It is reliable, it is true, it has the one true God, the one true way of salvation. It perfectly reflects who we are, it perfectly reflects reality of this life and the life to come. Hold fast to the Bible the, and the word of Christ, which is the second part. He says, our confession. What Our confession is both what we say, we believe, and what we are believing. 
The fact that we confess, we confess Jesus Christ is Lord. We believe He died and rose again for our sins. That's our confession. We believe it in faith. We believe those things. But it's also what the things are. It's what we say or our faith in the confession and it's the confession itself. All of this, we must not give up. Never lose it. Keep it forever and ever. Because Jesus said, Matthew 24, 13, he who endures till the end shall be saved. And even in Hebrews 3, 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We are partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. The beginning of our confession from the beginning until the end, hold fast to our faith and the faith in the true gospel. Hold fast until the very end. He further tells us that Jesus is our great high priest. Verse 14, since then we have a great high priest. Let us hold fast our confession. As well in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest. Now he explains who our high priest is. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is not a cold and a callous high priest. He is one who can sympathize with what we experience. He can sympathize with the fact that we are finite. We are in one place at one time, correct? We do not have full knowledge of everything. And Jesus in his humanity, he did not have full knowledge of everything. In his deity he did, but not in his humanity. Jesus was in one place at one time. Also in our humanity, we grow tired. We need to sleep. We need to eat and drink. These things are a part of our humanity. And when we do not have sufficient sleep, we are prone to sinning. When we do not have sufficient food and drink, we are prone to sinning in thought, word, and deed. When we do not have these basic things that are a part of our human weaknesses, we sin. Inevitably, we sin. But Jesus did not. Jesus never did. He had to sleep. He had to eat. He had to drink. He had all of these things, finite issues of life that we also have. In these ways, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Another way he can sympathize with our weaknesses is in the temptations of the world and the devil. The world and the devil, not the flesh, but the world and the devil. The devil, for example, Matthew 4 and Luke 4, tempted him under duress, severe temptation. For 40 days and 40 nights, he did not eat, it says in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. He did not partake. And at the end of it, when he was very, very vulnerable, very, very weak, physically weak, the devil comes and lays four temptations before him. And Jesus resists every one. The temptation was on the outside, not on the inside of his heart. It was on the outside. An external temptation, Satan tempted him to sin against God and to have another way of handling his circumstances. 
Yet he resisted and resisted, resisted and resisted four times. Then also the world. The world tempted Jesus. Was it not constantly that his enemies and the crowds would say things and do things to have Jesus say something or do something that would be contrary to the will of God? The Pharisees were constantly doing that. The multitudes would do that. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, when he's preaching to the multitudes and his disciples, one among the crowd says, Teacher, tell my brother to give me a part of the inheritance. And Jesus doesn't succumb to that. He says, "Um, Beware of every form of greed. Jesus pushed back on that man who shouted out from the crowd. He pushed back and said, No, beware of every form of greed. See, Jesus, even from the world, he had people coming to him and tempting him to say something, to, to smooth it over, to gloss it over, and to say, oh man, you're, you're just, you're just a, a good person, don't worry about it, everything will just work out fine. No, he wouldn't do that. He was not somebody who deferred to anyone, as it says in Matthew 22. Even one of his enemies had to admit that, He did it to disarm Jesus, but Jesus was not disarmed. One of his enemies in Matthew 22, 15 to 22 said, we know you don't defer to anyone. You're impartial. And that's true. He was impartial. Jesus never sinned. He also never sinned because he did not have a sinful nature. Remember we said, he was tempted by the world and the flesh, uh, in the, the world and the devil, but he was not tempted by the flesh. We have the flesh, not just our physical body. Many times when the Bible says the flesh, especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul, the flesh, often in Paul's writings, means our sinful nature. What we inherited from Adam and Eve when they first sinned, we all, all people, have this propensity, this desire, this inclination to do evil to do evil. We are in evil and we want to do evil and whatever we do does not please God. In fact, it deserves the wrath of God. That's the flesh. However, Christ did not have that at all. So he did what Adam and Eve could not do. Remember Adam and Eve? They were created perfectly, right? They had original righteousness. They were innocent. They had no guilt because they committed no sin. There was no sentence of death on them when they were first created in Genesis chapter 2. They were perfect. And Jesus also was perfect. But what Adam and Eve could not do, that is resist one sin, Jesus did. He resists not only one, he resisted all sin for his whole life. So when he died on the cross, he didn't die for his sins. He died for ours if we believe in him for us, if we believe. This is why it says that he's not a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That's another important confession. We say Jesus was perfect and sinless. The Bible says that. It's not a matter of Christian invention. It's not as though three or 400 years after Jesus Christ, there were certain theologians and pastors who are concocting some idea to make their religion better. No. From the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 53, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit in his mouth, which is repeated in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
who committed no sin, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Or as it says here, yet without sin, without a single sin. That's the confession of the apostle here. As well, Jesus, when he was attacked in John chapter 8, and the implication was that he was born of fornication, because they say to Jesus, we were not born of fornication, as though Jesus had an illegitimate birth, and he had an illegitimate birth because his parents were utterly sinful, and he was utterly sinful, and he was raised in a very sinful environment, and he's just a depraved, wicked man. That's all Jesus is. That was the implication of their statement in John 8. But what did Jesus say? Which one of you convicts me of sin? I challenge you. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Jesus was self-aware of the fact that he was sinless. And as well, he said in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. This is the Christ we know. This is the Christ we serve. Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest, who offered up himself, not an animal. How could an ox, how could a goat or a sheep, how could a bird, by its death, pay for our sins? Absolutely not. They are lesser creatures. But we have God condescending into this world in order to take upon a human nature to pay the penalty for our sins. That's what we saw in Philippians 2. That's what it's said here. That is also what is said right here in John, or Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, that is, when Jesus comes into the world, he says to the Father, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus knew that when he came into the world, he came to offer a perfect sacrifice, a sinless, unblemished sacrifice by his own body not the blood of bulls and goats. This is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is the one who always lives to make intercession for us. This is the one who intercedes for us. These statements are made because he loves us. Therefore, notice in verse 16, if all of this is true, therefore, let us Draw near with confidence. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. This is another exhortation for us. He said, let us hold fast, grasp it until the very end, but also let us draw near with confidence. Why pray just willy-nilly? Why pray without really meaning it? Why pray with an insincere prayer? Why pray in just a rote way. Why pray the way, well, somebody else prayed that way, so I, I guess I should pray that way, just like that. No. Come with a genuine, authentic, sincere heart to God. Pray to Him with confidence. Don't be shaking in your, in your boots. Don't be fearful. Don't be uh, wondering if He is able to answer prayer. Go 
draw near to God with confidence. Confidence. Because we know who He is. And we know we are rightly related to Him. We know He desires to answer prayer. We know. Because we know, we ought to come with confidence. Believing that what we pray, because we pray with good motives, not with evil motives, as He says in James 4, you ask and do not receive because you ask with evil motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. Don't ask with evil motives, but ask with the motive to please God, to glorify God, and for us to be able to minister and benefit other people, to love our neighbor as ourselves, To love God and to love our neighbor. Ask with those motives in mind that God may be glorified. So ask with confidence. Don't ask with anxiety. Don't ask with doubt. Ask with confidence. To the what, what where are we going? We have already said, now he says, to the throne of grace. Jesus said in John 14, 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He also says, if you ask the Father in my name, he will do it. So when we come to God through Christ, He promises that He will do it. He will answer our prayers. And He will be one who grants us grace. Notice, the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Grace and mercy. Grace is when God gives us things we do not deserve. Mercy is withholding punishment from us when we deserve the punishment. And here he says, we can receive mercy. We deserve God's punishment, but when we pray to him, we confess our sins. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is merciful to us. He's also gracious to us. We don't deserve many of the things we ask. Sometimes God grants them. At other times, He doesn't. We don't deserve them. After all, what are we? We are but dust and ashes, as Abraham even, a man of faith, said about himself in Genesis 18. We are but dust and ashes. Why should He be mindful of us? But He is, because He sees us in Christ. He sees us through the blood of Christ. Because of the blood of Christ, applied to us, because we are forgiven. And we have a new relationship. Therefore, come to God through Christ to receive mercy and grace. A word of clarification. When he says grace and mercy, he might have also, could have also said love. Love, grace, mercy. These days, especially grace and love, are abused and misused constantly. Not a day goes by that somebody does not misuse these words of love and grace. They, have biblical, they use biblical words, but with an unbiblical meaning. They think that everything that they do, that they can repent, in, uh, that they can sin in haste and then repent in leisure. They can sin in haste and repent in leisure. That's what people think about God. They look at God as a great grandfather as Santa Claus, as somebody who's out there with the big, uh, up there with the big bag of candy and he's ready to throw the candy from heaven onto the earth whenever we ask. That's what they think of God in terms of love and grace. 
But that's not the way he is. He's not loving and gracious that way. He is loving and gracious in the way that we just explained, that he has made provision for our sins and that he quickens us by his spirit of grace to believe and, and repent of our sins, to believe this gospel, to hold fast our confession. He is gracious in those ways and loving in those ways, but that doesn't mean that because he has made provision for our sins, that therefore every person will go to heaven, regardless of what he does. And it does not mean that every demon will go to heaven, because some people claiming to be Christians believe this doctrine of universalism, which teaches that every person and every demon, including the devil, will go to heaven. No. He's not loving in that way. Correct? For, for he says in Matthew 25, 46, these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. There's eternal life and there's eternal punishment. Revelation 20, 11 to 15, speaks of the lake of fire and it will be full of fire and brimstone and it lasts forever and ever. So, that is a punishment that nobody who goes there is receiving the mercy of God, receiving the grace of God for salvation, receiving the love of God for salvation. They're not getting that. Now, if that is true in the life to come, it's even true in this life. In this life, God does not so turn away from every instance of people's sins that he never punishes them. That's not true in this life either. It says about Ananias and Sapphira because they lied about the money, about the proceeds from the sale of their land. They lied about it when they gave some to the church. When they lied about it, not because they sold it, not because they owned it, but because they lied about it, they were put to death instantly put to death instantly in Acts chapter 5. That wasn't the unconditional and perennial love of God right there. They were gone in an instant. And there are many examples of that. Zacharias, when the angel Gabriel appeared to him in Luke chapter 1, he didn't believe what Gabriel said, that his wife Elizabeth would bear a son, John the Baptist. He didn't believe it, so he was struck right then with muteness. He was dumb. He could not speak until the day that he was born or, or wrote his name on the tablet. His name is John. And then he was able to speak. Which means for about nine months, he was unable to open his mouth. Well, is that loving? No, that's justice. That was justice against Zacharias. There are many, many examples of this, biblically speaking. So, when it says to receive, uh, receive mercy and find grace... It doesn't mean that we can twist the arm of our heavenly grandfather and get whatever we want and do whatever we want and repent in leisure. No. If we sin in haste, we better repent in haste. And if we do not repent, we manifest our true heart. Then, he says, in time of need. In time of need. The people addressed here, they were afflicted. They were afflicted because they were doubtful since some among them and some who had infiltrated their company had said, no, 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 you don't need to believe the way the apostles are teaching about Jesus. You can believe in Jesus, but also add these other things to it. Add these other doctrines, other practices, other teachings to it. You can add these other things to it, 
not just Jesus. No, Jesus plus something else. They were hearing those things and they were being confused. He said, no, no. That's why he says, let us hold fast our confession. You know the way we taught you and that's what you said you believed, so you better stick to what you said you believed. So they were needy in that way because they were demoralized and confused by what they were hearing. They were also, though, threatened physically. They were threatened physically because he says in chapter 10, chapter 10, 32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. They, participate, they were persecuted themselves, and then they helped the persecuted, and then they were being maligned. They were being reproached, slandered for helping the Christians, Christians helping Christians. And some of them even had their property seized. They were persecuted. So the time of need, he's implying there that even when everything is a mess all around us, Everything is uncertain all around us. Even though we don't know if we can trust the next person around us, our neighbor, we don't know he might come and seize our property. Even if it's the government, we don't know who is going to come and harm us because we believe in the true gospel. We live righteously and we speak righteously. That's the kind of need. That's the kind of circumstance that causes us or should cause us to draw near to God. That's what he means by time of need. We must say that because time of need is not, you know, I wish I had $5 million in the bank account. I wish I had perfect health all the time. I wish that I had a, a thousand friends. I wish everything were just fine with, with my life. I wish my garden would grow every summer without any problems, without any thorns and, and weeds and things like that. I wish, you see what people think? They invent those things as needs when they are not needs. Having perfect health is never a guarantee in the Bible. Having wealth is never a guarantee in the Bible. Having every thing that we can imagine day by day circumstances work out to our benefit as we imagine in our own mind does not mean it's a need. That's not a circumstance of need. These are wishes and whims, but they're not needs. And remember, James says, you have not because you ask not. Right? They didn't ask with the proper mind like this passage teaches us. They didn't ask with the proper mind. And then he says, you ask, you ask God, and do not receive because you ask with evil motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. That's why God doesn't answer. Because you're not asking with the right motive. You don't have the right goal in mind. Motives, methods, and goals, they all relate together. If you don't have the right motive, you don't ask in the right way, then you won't receive your goal. God, according to his will, according to our needs, chooses to answer according to those ways. 
After all, it says, 1 John 5, 14, if we ask anything, and it is in accordance with his will, he hears us. He will hear us and grant our request if it is in accordance with his will. Let's then remember who God is and what Christ has done for us and come to God with confidence, with our genuine desires, genuine needs, come to him because he's there ready to help us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.